Welcome everyone. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you here for the second installment of this course on ritual reenactments, becoming Moshe, a mother and a high priest in the Yamim Noraim Tefillah with Rabbi Leah Sarna. Uh, we're thrilled to have everyone here as part of Drisha's Elul programming. Uh, we're running a number of courses throughout the month of Elul and during Asar Yimei Tshuva. Uh, and so Rabbanit Sarna's course is uh, one of those uh, that we're really excited to be here for this evening. Uh, Rabbanit Sarna is our new Associate Education Director at Drisha. Uh, she previously served as the Director of Religious Engagement in Ashe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, she was ordained at Yeshiva Maharat in 2018 and holds a BA from Yale University in philosophy and psychology and has also trained at the Stella K. Abraham Beit Midrash for Women at Migdal Oz, has learned and taught previously at Drisha, as well as at the Center for Modern Torah Leadership. Uh, tonight's class in our set of ritual reenactments and the ways that the liturgy asks us to step into certain roles and persona on, uh, in moments of various prayers. Tonight's session will focus on Talmudic and liturgical texts about the shofar's cries, uh, and, and particularly as those relate to mothers, um, as both criers and the, one who, the ones who know cries the best, um, Others will be the focus here as we contemplate how the liturgy asks us to enact motherhood through what we are doing. Uh, it is great to see everyone here, um, but without further ado, Rabbi Sarna, uh, whenever you're ready, I think we can get started. Yeah, hi everyone. Um, so good to see you all here. And some, if you ever wonder, have any questions about active motherhood, you can just watch Kate um, and and her kid uh, in the in the on the big screen over here. Um, so tonight we're going to be talking about how on Rosh Hashanah we are called to enact motherhood. So last week, um, for those of you who joined us, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, such a vote of confidence and people will come back for round two. Um, last week we spoke about how the Slichot liturgy pushes us to step into the shoes of Moshe, return to the day in Moshe's life in which um, God revealed the 13 Mido to Moshe, um, and, and how we're called to kind of step into that moment, step into Moshe's shoes, and then also make Moshe-level kind of demands of God, uh, which is obviously a very intense thing to do, but that the reenactment that our liturgy encourages or potentially even kind of forces um, should therefore give us the confidence to make Moshe style demands of of the Almighty uh, which is really like a really intense thing that um, that our liturgy calls on us to do so on Rosh Hashanah I would argue we are called on to be mothers motherhood is a huge theme in the Rosh Hashanah liturgy um, does anyone want to just call out your favorite um, parenthood, motherhood um, moment? And if you're a man listening to this, we will get to you in one second. But there, there is like a little bit of um, something gendered going on. Um, does anyone want to call out your favorite like motherhood themed thing in the Rosh Hashanah liturgy that comes to mind? If you want to unmute yourself, you can just hit your space bar and that will temporarily unmute you.
and you have any thoughts. Otherwise, I'll just we'll just get to them in course. Uh, we do have one. Uh, Ellen Lerman on Facebook Live wrote on Facebook Live wrote Hana as as her favorite example. Great, ten points to you, Hana. We will get to that in the source sheet, but that is exactly right. We read as the Haftara um, on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. We read about Hana in that Haftara. Relatedly, does anyone have a recollection about what the Haftara for the second day of Rosh Hashanah is? It's from Yirmiyahu. And who is crying for her sons in Yirmiyahu? Uh, Rachel. Very good, right. So we have Rachel crying for her sons, Rachel Mivakal Baneha, on the second day. Very good, okay, amazing. So now, um, and um, is it, there's, there's one other thing that our liturgy um, describes as pregnant, um, or um, in, in the Rosh Hashanah lit liturgy over and over again? The birth of the world. The world, the world is, is pregnant, or the, something is Yom Harad Olam. Right, so very confusing actually how all those words string together. Today the world is pregnant, today is the pregnancy of the world, today is the birth of the world. Um, who is pregnant with the world, if the world is itself pregnant, very, you know, you could, you could string those words together in a million different ways, but you definitely have this very strong pregnancy um, theme in the liturgy itself. Um, and what, when do we say Hayom Harat Olam, does anyone recall, what does that come after? actually a little bit of a trick question but in general where does that come after comes after the shofar right three times we say it after shofar it's a little bit of a trick which you'll see this year because we say it also on right in between you say it in between this the the sections right so right, right. So let's say you have machu exactly then you say then you say um that and then you blow shofar and then you would say hey omar Adolam. exactly um you say it also on you say it even when you don't blow shofar because it's Shabbos, so that's why it's a little bit of like a trick. But it's it seems to be connected to shofar blowing, and you actually know that because um, if you we talk oh we're going to talk about this today. I was trying to remember when we talked about this, and we haven't yet. But we'll we'll see a source that talks about um, that talks about the custom to blow shofar during the silent amidah, um, and in the silent amidah. Um, in, in communities where you blow shofar during the silent Amidah, we'll talk about how that works when we get there. Um, you actually say Hayom Harat Olam in the silent Amidah, which you don't say if you don't blow shofar in the silent Amidah. So even though we say it even on days where we don't blow shofar, it's clearly connected to shofar because it gets added into the liturgy of the silent Amidah um, if, you're, if you're praying somewhere where they blow shofar during the silent Amidah. Anyways, okay, so those are all really good. Um, there's one other person who we'll get to. She's not intuitive, but she's also um, very important. If anyone wants to call out one other mother who is connected to the Torah reading and to the day, um, if anyone wants to call it out. Otherwise, I'll just... Is it Hagar? Oh, so Hagar, for sure. She's in the Torah reading. Um, and relatedly to Hagar, who else? Sarah, right, her, her sister wife, um, her co-wife, um, Sarah, exactly. Uh, thanks, Kate. Um, okay, so before we really dive in, I do want to say an aside um, for the men um, that I think motherhood is something that um, men can certainly practice as well. Um, and we'll just, you know, let me share my screen because I have some textual evidence for that, which I think is pretty cool. Um, 
All right, so in, oh, I meant to make this big. Bigger. In source one, too big, too big. All right, in source one over here, we have Moshe saying, um, right, Moshe says, did I conceive all these people? Did I bear them? Right? Hariti, hara. Did I like, was I pregnant with them? Did I give birth to them? Um, such that you would say to me, carry them in your bosom. As a nurse carries an infant. To the land that you have promised. So, here we have Moshe saying, like uh, using motherhood metaphors about himself um, and asking God, like, did you make me the mother of these people? Which means that there's like a conceptual world in which God would be like, yes. <laughs> and that motherhood uh, can be, can in fact, potentially at least be practiced by men. Um, and so I want to argue that these, that on Rosh Hashanah, our liturgy and our haftaras and our Torah readings um, all kind of give, leave open or, or push um, everyone, not just women, but also men, into the role of motherhood as, as a stance that is particularly important um, on, on this day. And so through, and, and also through shofar, right? And that shofar through Hayom Harad Olam is also, um, is also kind of tapping into that. Um, okay, so let's actually start, I want to start with the piece about shofar that's actually a little bit um, less intuitive. So um, we're gonna we're gonna look at two women vis-a-vis -vis their relationship to um, shofar specifically. So this is our first one, and we're gonna look at a midrash veikar raba. Um, and here we have a somewhat well-known story from. Um, there are somewhat well-known midrash. There's different versions of it, so I'll just tell you that in advance. So you, when you say this midrash, you'll be like, "Wait, I thought something else happened." So just know that there's different versions that are all quite similar, and I only put one in here because we're not giving a whole sure about just this one midrash. But here's the midrash. So it's about our Torah reading on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, which is about Akedat Yitzchak. And here you have the story of Avraham, Natal Yitzchak Beno, he took Yitzchak, Yitzchak, Ve'aleu, Harim, Ve'orizok, Ve'od, and he took him up mountains and down, down into valleys, Ha'aleu, Al-Chad, Min Harim, he took him up onto one of the mountains, Uvanami's Be'ach, and he built an altar, Vesider Etzim, and he organized wood, Ve'arach, Ma'archa, and he prepared the whole sacrificial array, Ve'natal et Hasakim HaShachtau, and he took up the knife to slaughter his son. And, and if the angel hadn't called out from the heavens, he already would have been slaughtered. And this has the Midrash, you know this is the case, because Isaac went down off the mountain and he went to his mother. Now, everything until now was more or less in the Torah. We never see another conversation between Isaac and his mother in the Torah. So this part is all the Midrash at its finest. Um, so we have Isaac, he goes back to his mother. She says, where have you been, my son? says, my father took me and he took me up mountains and he took me down to valleys. 
She says, woe to the son of a woman drunk. Let's hold on to that drunkenness, that midrashic motherhood drunkenness for a moment. Why Hold on to the mother who is drunk with grief. If it were not for the angel, you would have been slaughtered already. Amar la in. And he says back to her, yes. And that time she screamed out six cries corresponding to six shofar blasts. And they said, so the translation here says no sooner had she done so than she died. I would actually say lohi spika, which means that she actually didn't finish it. The Mishnah says shofar, the minimum requirement for shofar is shalosh, shal, shalosh, shalosh, which means three sets of tekiah, trua, tekiah. You have to do that three times, and that is in and of itself three, okay? Shalosh, shal, shalosh, shalosh. Um, and... Um, and so she only got through six cries, not nine, right? It's meant to be three times three is nine, and she only did six, so she didn't finish calling out all of her shofar cries until she died. And that's the beginning of Parsha Chayesaka. Um, so this is not in the Torah, but here you have Midrash and Vikarab, a relatively early Midrash, and you have the Midrash saying, what is the origin of shofar? Right, it never it never says uh, it never says explicitly shofar, but shisha kolot kenegad shisha tkiot. It doesn't say tkiot shofar, but I think you're supposed to intuit tkiot shofar. And so, therefore, the midrash is suggesting um, that Sarah is, in some ways, the origin of shofar. Obviously, you have the ram itself, but she calls, she screams out like the like the shofar, like the ram's horn, and um, and her her cries are are the shofar blasts. And, and they, she couldn't even finish that before she, she had to leave this world. So that, I mean, I think that's more or less the entire shiur in a nutshell, but I wanna, I wanna provide more evidence to this idea that the shofar is actually um, a performance of motherhood. So not only is it reenacting Sarah in this moment of hearing that her son was in this horrible situation, this this moment of teetering between life and death. So that's that, that's the other piece of this that I want us to hold on to is it's not just any moment of motherhood. It's a moment of of motherhood in which there's a great risk. So the great risk of my son was about to be killed by my husband, let's say. Um, and which, honestly, like, I don't know how you recover from that. So in, in some ways, like, that, that makes a lot of sense in this narrative that Sarah then dies. Uh, we never hear her kind of confronting Avraham about it, or, or potentially she, she couldn't even have, have considered that. Um, but, but so let's hold on to that, because we're going to see that, we're going to see that again, that, that exact theme of women crying out in these, like, life-death moments vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, their children. Okay. Um, so now we're just going to, and we're not going to read all this, but this is this moment, this is the, from the Haftarah, this is um, the story of Hannah, and uh, as, as um, was intuited in the I forget who you said it was, but in the Facebook chat. Um, so I'm so glad you're watching and participating. Um, so here we have Hannah. She is childless and she gets up and she 
goes with her husband to Shiloh, where the Mishkan is, and she goes in and Vihimarat Nafesh, and she is, um, she's extremely wretched. She prays to God and she cries. We have a lot of crying um, in this language of Hana. Um, and we have also, this is, we have some, some of these um, classic lines where, um, where um, we learn about even how to daven from Hana. So that's here. Hana himidaberet aliba rak sifateha naot vekola lo uh, right, so she, her, her, her lips move, but you can't hear any voice from her. And Eli then thinks, "Oh yes, she is drunk." Um, and okay, so then she, but and in her like intensity of prayer for this not yet conceived child, um, she, um, she calls out and she cries, and then she uh, has the child. And that's all very good. Um, and we have this other piece, by the way. So, okay, they do the human part um, of, of conceiving a child. And but then God has to do the God part and God has to remember. And this this is another great meaning. The, 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 way, the way that, that, that um, the way that haftaras were selected is always like intensely brilliant and their liturgical purpose is clear. We see this particularly on fast days. Um, Rav Salavichik wrote that actually like the peak piece of the fast day liturgy is the haftara. Uh, the, the haftara that we read at Mencha on fast days, that's like in some ways like the most important part of the davening of that day. And I, and I think that's a really beautiful way to see haftaras in general, that in some ways haftaras are, I mean, in every way, haftaras are part of the liturgy and, and we're supposed to see them as part of our tefillah, as part of our davening. Um, and I would say that here too, um, very similarly. And, 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 and it also just ties in in all of these ways. So you have here, not just someone crying out in the manner of potentially a shofar, but also you have, like, you have the zikhonot, you have, um, you have God actually remembering her. Um, and you have that also in the Torah reading. Anyways, okay. Um, and so then you have Hanad davening even more, right? So she says, um, she says to, she sees the high priest and she says, El palalti, I prayed for this, for this boy. Um, and, and, and then she says, um, I'm going to, um, I'm going to lend him back to, to, to God to serve the Mishkan with you. But and then Hanad, opens up and has this like beautiful tefillah that she um that she gives forward so we've just seen the word in this like one chapter the word vetipalel shows up any number of times she serves as our model of tefillah and again what is it it's this moment of like life and death of will i conceive will i not conceive and prayer for and and prayers of gratitude then for for his conception um, and the same thing, basically, you have another woman crying um, in Rachel, right? And, and again, the, the language of Bechi um, repeats a few times, uh, repeats at least uh, three times, right? Nehi Bechi Tamarim, Rachel, Mevaka, Albana, Min Ikolach, Min Bechi, right? So there's just a lot, right? Your eyes from from crying because she's crying over her sons in hope of um 
in hope of their return. Um, and, 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 and her prayers are, are ultimately heard um, and, and God responds, Right, they, they, your sons, there's reward for your labor, they shall return from the enemy's land, your children shall return to their country. So not only do we have two cases of women crying when their children are in, or, or not yet children, or dreamed of children, are in this kind of critical condition of, I can't have children, or my children have been exiled, but then two stories also of their prayers being answered. Um, so that's also very important, that not only is this idea of motherhood, that the mother kind of intercedes on behalf of a child in a, in a vulnerable situation, but also, um, which is, by the way, to go back to the Moshe as motherhood thing that we started out with, that's kind of what Moshe doesn't want to do, right? Moshe says, like, did you, I didn't understand like that I was being put in charge of such a vulnerable group of people that I had to be a mother to them. Um, and, and here that's exactly what you're seeing these women doing, all three of them so far that we've seen, right? Sarah um, crying out over the fact that her son was almost killed by her husband, <laughs> Hannah crying out over her future child, um, and, and Rachel, and Rachel here too. Um, and, and it's these women crying out over, over the vulnerable situations of their, that, that their children are placed in and taking responsibility for them. And then in two situations, so not for Sarah, um, those, meaning for Sarah, like had she known, she would have prayed and it already had been answered by the time she calls out. But for Hannah and for, for Rachel, they're both um, Hannah, we see that her prayer is answered, and, and for Rachel, um, we have a promise of her, her prayer being answered. Um, and there's, a, there's a, it, it ties in nicely to this idea that, that we see in Baba Mitzia. So in Baba Mitzia here, we're talking about um, Ona'at Dvarim, so we're talking about oppression of other people. And in the Gemara there, it talks about, um, it talks about how you have to be particularly careful not to oppress your wife. Because here, so here's here's Rav, Amar Rav, we're in source number five. Amar Rav lo lami hadam zahir ba'onaat ishto. You have to be super careful not to oppress your wife with words. Shemitoch shedim atam mitzuya because she'll she cries easily. Her tear is easily elicited. Onaata krovat. It's really um um uh, the punishment for like you achieve the level of. Ona, like you, like the bar is low for violating Ona for her, um, and then and and why is that so bad? So first of all, Ona Tarim obviously is a violation, a Torah violation. But here's Rabbi Elazar jumping into this. Amar Rabbi Elazar, miyom shnecharav Beit Hamikdash nina alu He says from the day that the Beit Hamikdash was destroyed, the gates of prayer are closed, as it says in Eicha Gamki Azak veShaveh Satam Tefilati. Though I plead and call out. Shut out my prayer. And even though the gates of prayer are locked, the gates of tears are not locked. Hear my prayer, Lord. Give ear to my pleading. Keep not silence on my tears. 
So first of all, this is just an amazing text. And actually in our Ne'ilah prayers, we talk about these gates of tears. So look out for those this year at the end of, um, at the end of Yom Kippur, because we believe that those, those gates are still open. And then the, what the challenge is, is to cry. And, but who is like the ultimate kind of crier in, in almost like a good way. In, in this Gemara, it is wives, it is women. Um, and, but what, but we've already seen, we saw, Hannah cry, we saw Rachel cry, and what happens when they cry? Their cries are answered. So it's not like, oh, those weak women, they cry all the time. Those strong women, they cry all the time, right? Because God answers tears. And so what do your tears accomplish? Literally everything, right? Tears accomplish everything. Um, They accomplish it for Hannah, they accomplish it for Rachel, they accomplish it for the wife in the Talmud, and they will accomplish it for you too. Um, and we have another, we have just another source to, to back this up. So the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah says, source number six, sorry about that, um, source number six, Rosh Hashanah nifkeda Sarah, Rachel, Vechana. And Rosh Hashanah, Sarah, Rachel, and Chana were all revisited. They were all um, remembered by God, right? So that's, um, Basically, the sources we just saw, Hashem Bakadat Sarah, as Kate pointed out, is uh, the um, Torah reading on the first day. Um, and so here, here, the, here the Gemara is saying they were all remembered and they, and they, they, they became pregnant, imagines the Gemara on this day, which is another, um, adds a whole new valence to Hayom Harat Olam, right? Like, who got pregnant on Rosh Hashanah? Everyone. Sarah Chalchana, Amar Avilazar, Ate Pekita, okay, so now they, I don't know, I think we're going to skip this, actually. They, they go into, like, these, like, text, um, like, how do we learn this from, oh, you have this word over here and that word over here, like, zero trivo in order to, to learn out. Anyways, but just just trust me, you can, uh, it's here for you. You're welcome to read it on your own unless you're looking along the screen share, in which case I'm going to scroll past. But, um, but um, anyways, um, but we have then Gemara also saying like Rosh Hashanah connection to these women achieving their goals on this day. Um, okay, so now we're going to look at um, a slightly more complicated example, but one that, that kind of, I think, the complexity of it, I think, really proves the point. Like, there's something very easy about, like, Sarah, Hannah, Rachel. Like, they're just, it's easy to look up to them. It's easy to feel inspired by them. I mean, obviously, each in their own way is a very complicated, like, character, and no characters in Tanakh are perfect and all of that, but they're all easy compared to the women we're about to look at, um, and I'm sure um, many of our listeners know exactly who we're about to talk about, which is the mother of Sisra. Okay, so, but let's, like, back up a little bit um, and look at it inside. So we were just talking about this Mishnah before when we saw Sarah only calling out six blasts. This is the Mishnah where we know we need to call out nine blasts. So the Mishnah says, Seder Tekiot, Shalosh, Shalosh, Shalosh. So the order of the blasts is three sets of three blasts each, which are Tekiot, Trua, Tekiot. Um... So the length of the tekiah needs to be the length of three true oat. 
Um, and the length of a trua is equal to three whimpers. Okay, that is like a, a super halakhically complex um, text and also like how that plays out in our own like practical shofar blowing just like as an aside on that um, and how the words come to mean this I'm, I'm not going to get into because that's like a little bit too complicated but, but it just like you should know so when you're listening to shofar you'll, you'll know what to listen for. Um, so the, the tkia of each set, so you have a set is three blasts. So you have a tkia detrua or slash a shvarim slash a shvarim trua, um, and and then you have another tkia. So the tkia in in a set needs to be the length of the middle thing. So let's say you blow a tkia shvarim and then a tkia. So that tkia at the beginning needs to be as long as the shvarim is going to be, and similarly that final tkia, which means that when you're blowing a set with a shvarim trua, your tkia needs to be the length of a shvarim trua, which means you need a long tekiah there. Um, so that's just like what you can listen for when you, the, the person who's the mockery, the one who calls out like tekiah, he's the one in charge of determining whether they were long enough. Um, and um, I just learned today from someone that typically a shvarim trua is about seven seconds. And so the tekiahs before and after should be about seven seconds. So that's that, just for fun, you know, it's always nice when you're like listening to something. That's not what you should be thinking about when you're listening to shofar, and I'm going to tell you what you should be thinking about. But there's a lot of shofar, so if at some point your mind wanders to, oh, now I know the halacha, you could do worse than that um, in your mind wandering. Um, and it's good to know just like what's happening in shul in general. I'm a big believer. Okay, so on to the Gemara. So the Gemara says the length of a trua is equal to three whimpers. So uh, quoting the Mishnah, right? So Vahatanya, we have a Braita Shur Trua Ke Shalosh Shvarim. Um oh man, I cut out the English here. That's no good. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Um okay, so the, the Gemara says we have a Braita um that the length of the true is equal to three shivarim, which presumably are longer than whatever these yavavot, these whimpers are. Amar Abaye, says, Bahavadai Plie, this is for sure what we're debating. Ktiv Yom Yalachem says in Bamidbar that that um, this day will be a day of trua, mitargaminan, and the targum on that pasuk in Bamidbar says, yom yivava yalechon, it'll be a day of yivava, this language that we have, yivavo, whimpering, v'ktiv be'imei the sisra, and it says about the mother of sisra, we find in Shoftim, We'll get to who Sisera is in a second. But the mother of Sisera sat by the window and did Yavava. She whimpered, she cried. So Marsavar Marsavar So one says the sounding. So you have a debate about basically the debate between whether it's a shvarim or whether it's a trua. And one says it's groaning, and one says it's whimpering. Um, and that becomes the debate about whether the trua in the Torah is what we would call a trua or what we would call shvarim. Um, and then you have this compromised opinion of a shvarim trua, which is really just halacha at its best. Um, and um, and that that's basically how we get to like what we do for, for um, shofar blog. But I'm interested in this mother of Sisra because who is Sisra? Um, Sisra sucks. He, in the time of Shoftim, he attacked 
the Jews. And now we're gonna have another, two other women. So we're in the song of Devorah. So Devorah sings, she, she sings a, um, a song and it's this like super military fighter lady song because um, she rocks. Um, and actually though, then she like sings about her buddy Yael. So Tiburach Minashim Yael, most blessed of women be Yael. She's the wife of Chavara Kini. Um, and most blessed of women in the tents, because what does she do in her tent? And you might think, oh, women in the tents, like, so, you know, uh, so, like, that's where women belong, whatever. Devorah, you're letting me down? No, because what does Yael do in her tent? So this is about Sisera as the man here. He asked for water. She offered milk. In a princely bowl, she brought him curds. Her left hand then reached for the tent pin, her right for the workmen's hammer, and then she struck Sisera, crushed his head, smashed and pierced his temple. Cool. So, woman in the tents. Next time someone tells you to, like, go home, tell them this is what you should do. Um, and, um, and at her feet, he sank, lay outstretched. At her feet, he sank, lay still, right? That's poetry. Um, and uh, where he sank, there he lay destroyed. And then, but in the meanwhile, okay, so that's, like, seen over here, yeah, Al destroying this guy, Sisra, um, his general. Um, and then, like the 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 focus now like shifts back to to Cicero's homeland. Um, so if this were like a movie or a TV show, like you'd have like a totally new setting. Okay, and here you have the mother of Cicero. So Ba'ada Cicero through the window peered Cicero's mother behind the lattice. She whined. Ba'ada oh, I'm sorry, that's behind the lattice. Um, Madua Why is this chariot taking so long to come? Madua why do I not hear the sound of his wheels? And then her ladies in waiting, her wise ladies tell her, and and um and she also like comes up with all these excuses about um where they must be. Oh, they must have won, and they're dividing the spoils and they're taking all these, I mean, it's kind of funny to like imagine it's like all oh, the stuff her son's gonna bring back for her. He's gonna bring me back dyed cloths and embroidered clothes and um, a couple of embroidered clothes around every neck as spoil. Um, and um, and then Devorah, the, the one who's singing, says, And then we finish off all of Shoftim about Devorah. Um, so we have, so Dvorah ends her song with, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, and may his friends be as the sun rising in might. And after this military victory and song, the land was tranquil for 40 years. So this is very interesting that when the Gemara is looking to understand what the Torah means by Yom Truah Yelachem, they look to none other than Sisra's mother. Because we just glorified Sisera's death, right? We raise up Yael, like what a rock star. She killed him. She killed him so good, right? We said that like three times. And with this like really intense description of in her right hand, she grabbed a this. And in her left hand, she grabbed a that. Like just really like glorified description of the death of this man. And in the Talmud, the Talmud then says, oh, 
Um, yeah, so when we're thinking about like what Yom Trua means, oh, it means what she was doing. It means what the mother of Sisera must have been feeling, which I think is just like really strange. And I am not the first person to wonder about it. Um, so you have, um, oh, and I should mention, by the way, that that's not the only thing that comes from the mother of Sisera. So the mother of Sisera also gives rise to the following. So here's the Aruch, I mentioned it before. Um, the Aruch says, I mentioned before that, that the Aruch brings forward this idea of uh, this practice that is, is common in um, Hasidic communities, but Russell Vichuk was also a big fan, um, and it's Jesus and Maimonides, I think at YU maybe they also do it, um, that they blow shofar in the silent Amida. And he says, why do you do it? So so they blow 30 blasts when everyone is sitting, i.e. before the Shmonastri, those are, we call it the Kiyot Demir Shav, 30 during the silent Amida, and then 30 blasts during the repetition of the Amida, corresponding to according to the hundred cries that the mother of Sisra cried out. Oh yeah, by the way, that only added up to 90, so that extra 10, so we say, we do that, we blow the extra 10 at the end, um, for the, the more like standard Ashkenazi practice that you might be familiar with is that we blow 30 and then 30 throughout the repetition, and then we blow 40 at the end. So that's, that might be more what's familiar to people, but that's not what the Arach is describing. But any, what's interesting to me is actually, I mean, that, that sounds fascinating, but that's not the point. The point is that um, we blow 100 because of the mother of Sisera. So we just read together and we saw nowhere that the mother of Sisera cried a hundred cries. Um, that's not part of Devorah's explanation of, um, of what's happening, or Devorah's not explanation, but description of what's happening. Um, and so here we have the Sefer Manig. The Sefer Manig is a very um, interesting work. It was put together by Aram ben Natan, um, and he, he's from, I he, he's from Lunel, Lunel, I forgot how to pronounce that, and um, there's other people who like share his, uh, contemporaries of his who have similar names, so he calls himself, you can see here, Ibn Hayarchi, and I'm pretty sure the Yarchi is Lunel, like the place he's from, and then he connects it to the moon, which is what it means, uh, like lunar. Um, it, anyways, so that's what he calls himself. He was a wanderer, um, and what that enabled him to do, and he was just like all over the place, and what that enabled him to do was to actually collect a book of like common practices and write it down. Um, it wasn't printed for a very long time. I mean, obviously when he was writing and you know, the 1100s and 1200s, there was no printing, um, but it wasn't printed for a very long time. Um, and that means that all of our, um, all of the printings and manuscripts that the printings are based off of are corrupted. So it's, it's, a very useful source, but also it's sometimes like hard to read or understand because it's clearly like missing words or sentences or ideas. But here we have a very early source saying um, that I heard in Bavel that they have the practice to blow a hundred kolot, right? Which means that, by the way, he like didn't have the practice to blow a hundred kolot. It wasn't like, oh, everyone blows a hundred blasts of the shofar. Uh, it's like, oh, I heard that they in Babylon do this, right? So that's just in and of itself kind of interesting. You have um, a guy who's in medieval Ashkenaz and Sfarad who's saying, oh, telling you about the custom in Babel um, and that it wasn't widespread yet. Oh, and I saw it in the Aruch. Um, and then he's gonna say, okay, so 
um, I found, right, so he says, oh, it connects to, he quotes the Aruch, um, it connects to the 100 cries of the mother of Sisera. And he says, I found a smach a davar. I found like a, um, a, a something to like connect it to, a hint of a reason for it which is from the Midrash. This Midrash appears in a few different places, even within the Tanhuma, it appears in a few different places. So he quotes it um, from the Tanhuma in Amor. It's also the Tanhuma in Tazria, which obviously you'll see in a second why it makes a ton of sense. Um, so, Zoshamar Katu hen atem ma'ayan vladchem ma'afat ho'ivayivchar behem. So it says, um, behold, you are nothing and your work is not an abomination shall he choose among you. So they're going to play like an interesting, it's really not the point, but we'll just go through it. Um, we're going to, they're, they're going to play like a little bit of um, word games with it. Um, um, so, um, behold, you are nothing. So, okay, you're full of nothing. You're from a putrid liquid. And you're, um, and you're, and then like the the ma'fa becomes the pulat chem ma'fa becomes mimea peyotcheisha poa beledata. So that then becomes the a hundred screams that a woman screams in her labor. Tzadi tet lemita ve'echadachayim. Ninety nine for death and one for life. And when she screams out that last one hundredth scream, that's like the the chance that her child has at life. Um, and so this is the part of this that doesn't really make a lot of sense is how he tries to, is how here, how, how the Aruch tries to connect um, this Midrash to the screaming of the mother of Sisra. So Tricha Farish, Sherotel Omar, Kshanit Yashva or Kshanit Yavava. You have to say that when she cries out in Chavlei Yolada, um, in, in the suffering of a woman in childbirth, where Christ came to her like a woman who was sitting on a birthing stool, she cries out like a woman in childbirth, so it's a little bit hard to understand exactly what he means in that last part. It seems to me like he's missing a little piece there, but he's saying, I think what he's getting at, or like my read of it, is that, um, the mother of Sistra on imagining or understanding why her son was delayed in his return, she reverts back to his mother in the tremendous pain of childbirth, and she cries out in that same way. So any woman who's worried about her children's survival reverts to that like prime moment of this child coming out of my body, is this child gonna survive? Where she cries out 99 screams for death and one scream for life. So any, so what I think what he's trying to do is to connect the mother, the psychology of the mother of Sisra in this moment to the woman who's giving birth. And to say that in some ways, when contemplating the potential death of your child, that brings you back to the incredible, both physical, but also in a world where many, you had a lot of stillbirths, um, and stillbirths obviously still happen today and are extremely traumatic and scary and difficult. Um, 
and painful at every level. Um, so that same fear of, is my son still alive? That's the fear that, that this woman experiences in her childbirth, not knowing whether what's about to come out of her body in this extraordinary pain um, will be a living child or a dead one. Um, and, um, and that, and that she, the mother of Sisra is tapping back into that moment and she cries out a hundred, a hundred screams in that very same way. Um, okay, so I'm gonna talk about one more text then we'll pause for a couple of questions and then we'll, we'll round this out. Um, so just with the Mesha Chochma, just on the same subject, we've jumped forward a long time. Mesha Chochma passed away in the 1920s, um, so really quite recent. Uh, but he, he also turns his attention to this um, connection. Um, and, and he just adds in, so he, he, he re, he's read the man, he, he sees the connection between the mother of Sisera and the, um, and the woman who's on the, the birthing stool. And then he says, he connects it in the Hayom Harat Olam today, um, well, however you want to translate this, this cryptic line of today is the birth of the world, today the world is pregnant, today is the pregnancy of the world. And the whole world, he argues, is sitting on the birthing stool for kindness or for, for judgment, with your judgment stick. And therefore, and therefore we call out a hundred blasts. Well, that's like a really amazing interpretation of what's happening. So when we so just to walk you through that, where we've come from from the Mishnah of Shalosh 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 again, right? We have the Torah says there will be a day of trua, and then we have an interpretive issue of what is trua. The Targum on what is trua says we're still in the Gemara. The Targum on what is trua says Yom Yivava. Okay, so we have this language of Yivava. Who, who does Yavava? Oh, the mother of Sisra does Yavava. She cries out while she's waiting by the window for her child. Um, and from there, we get to the Aruch who says, and she cried out a hundred times. The Manig who says, from where do you know she cried out a hundred times? Oh, she's like the woman on the birthing stool, the Midrash says, cries out a hundred times. And the Mesha Chokhmah says, yes, and on Rosh Hashanah, the world is on the birthing stool and it is crying out a hundred times. So that's how we get Am Sisra to what is a true a hundred kolo and to what is happening. The whole world is, is, is it giving birth on this on this day. Um, I'm not done and have many more things to say, but um, I want to take, I, I haven't really stopped for questions at all or comments or feedback of any sort. And that is um, really not my style. And so I wanted to just like take a breath for a minute um, and hear any questions or thoughts that people might have. Just, uh, you know, like I, I can't, because of my screen share, I can't see everyone. So feel free to just hop in if you have any thoughts or questions. Um, I'll jump in. Um, I sort of love the way um, it doesn't really matter who you are. You know, you could be the mother of Sisra, who was a terrible person, and you could be like Hagar, like these women. It really doesn't matter. There's like a universal sense a little bit to what's happening. And it's not just like the, um, like the founding Avod and Imahot that are impacting the day. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I don't think, meaning when you were talking about Slicho last week, um, it, I was very specific. I was like, this is about Moshe. And here I'm not like, this is about Hannah or this is about Sisra. I actually think that the move to Sisra, who in some ways is this like really kind of random woman, um, is a move towards universalism, is a move towards um, not only could it be anyone, it could even be the mother of your enemy, even someone who like, we're so happy he's dead, <laughs> right? Like, it's, we're, we're gonna glorify his death. Um, but even for her, like, she's still a mother. And the point is, the point is the motherhood, not who you are or any other piece of your like background or situation. It's, it's, it's like a way of, I think it's a move towards abstraction. Of the, of the theme, which I think then also enables it to be um, generalizable to people who will never experience motherhood um, because it's not about like the physical having of the child, it's about motherhood as a metaphor, motherhood as a form, as, a, as a, almost a thing that anyone without like physical traits or experiences can, can take on um, as a as a mantle. So we saw Moshe talking about taking it on potentially as, as a man who wouldn't have experienced motherhood, but I would say for sure that can be expanded to literally anybody. Um, people who are too young to be mothers or people who, you know, never, never had that experience for, for whatever, for whatever reason, um, whether that's totally fine for them or sad for them or anything else like that. This is something, this is an experience that can be tapped into and we use motherhood and these specific women as almost like metaphors for it or as ways to tap into it. But it's actually a little bit more conceptual um, than, than any like specific um, woman or experience. I have a comment and I have a question. Yeah, thanks. Go. Um, so my comment is that it seems like, like, in my head, the shot of Shoshim, which I've seen, like, many times, thank God, in my, in my life, but in my head, it, like, ended with Sister's Mother crying, and that was the source for Shofar, but that's actually not what it is. It's this more, like, doubtful, like, I don't know what's happening sort of tentative thing, and I was struck by the sort of, like, potentiality, we don't know, like, I feel kind of bad about things, but it could still be okay, like, we're gonna tell ourselves a story, and the sort of interaction with that of the like, the cr like crying out of the woman who's giving birth as like, we don't know what's going to happen yet. And like thinking about that on Rosh Hashanah and like that as an overlap. That's my comment. Yeah. So and I think just to respond to that for a second, that's why I think in some ways Sarah is the worst of the examples. Everyone else, I could have brought Hagar onto here also. And I'm so glad that Kate mentioned her and uh, who was just talking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'll just mention her now. Um, and because she actually is also in the camp of, I don't know what's going to happen. Like my child is in this vulnerable state and uh, it could go either way, um, which we saw with Sisra because she doesn't know yet. We know, but she doesn't know, which we see with Hana with her like not yet child, um, which we see with Rachel and her future, obviously children. But Sarah already knows the outcome. So in some ways she's the worst example, even though she would obviously be the most kind of straightforward of the examples if otherwise. Yeah. Okay. We got um, so my question is, I feel like when we talked about Moshe last week, I came out with a very clear picture of like, here's what it means to think of myself as Moshe when I'm davening. Like it gives you certain sort of like footing and chutzpah and like confidence. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more for those of us who aren't mothers or aren't yet mothers. Um, like what you see, like being able to read ourselves into these images, like brings to our like ought to bring to our tefillah experience. 
Great. So that is um, exactly where I wanted to go next. So with all of your permission, I'm going to stop answering questions now um, and answer Abigail's question um, and then wrap up. And then if we have more minutes, I'm happy to uh, stick around for a little bit and answer other questions. Um, okay. So exactly as Abigail mentioned, I am quite invested in leaving you with a way to kind of read yourself into this. So the first thing I want to say on that is um, I want to say that the blowing of the shofar, and this is why I think Sisra, and I brought that midrash for Sarah, because you have Sarah as the beginning of the, you have Sarah as kind of the initiator of shofar, then you have shofar being modeled on the mother of Sisra, you have all these women crying in the same way that you have Sisra's mother crying. And we saw that Gemara and Baba Mitzia about how when people cry, their cries are answered. And so the shofar, as we see very explicitly from Sarah and the mother of Sisra, is the cry of the mother. Okay, great. So what is that? So how, what does it mean to read yourself into that? So first of all, I think it means to do almost the opposite of what we saw Moshe doing. Moshe says, I'm not these people's mother. I think on Rosh Hashanah, we're saying, I'm these people's mother. And the whole world is in the vulnerable state. When you say, Hayom Harat Olam, read in, which comes right after Shofar, read into it the Mesha Chochma, who is saying the whole world is on the birthing stool right now. And we, in blowing Shofar, are calling out in the vulnerability of that world. We're in a situation, a precarious, vulnerable situation, where the world could be judged for good or the world could be judged for bad. Never in my lifetime, a relatively short lifetime, has that felt more real than this year. Um, and we'll, we'll leave the commentary on that for another time. Um, but it feels, right, the world feels very precarious. Um, and, and really that, that it could go in, in so many different ways. And that instead of this move of did I give birth to this world which like that you know that we could say that um but but the shofar calls us and reminds us to do what a mother needs to do which is to take responsibility to keep moving forward and to cry out in the cries of Rachel and the cries of the mother of Sisra and the cries of Hannah and the cries of Hagar and the cries of Sarah and and say yes like I care I'm not walking away from this responsibility um and I I believe that my cries are a form of prayer and my cries will be answered because the gates of cries are open. Um, and so what it means, and, and just to like, Abigail asked me to, to kind of maybe like reflect for, uh, as, as a mother of four and a half months, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like rather unqualified to say like, this is what motherhood is about. But at the same time, like the early days of, of motherhood as, um, as you might know just from like literature or talking to friends are like absolutely brutal because you have a child who is incapable of anything and cries all the time and your job is to guess what they want and provide it to them whenever they want it whether or not you've gotten any sleep in the last like four weeks or not um and um and and the child is totally helpless even to the extent of many children are not like are not good at feeding them, are not good at eating, right? You think like, oh, babies are born, the only thing they know how to do is to suck. Well, like a lot of babies are really bad at that even. Like they're not even capable of helping themselves to get the only thing they need, which is food. And they're not even capable of falling asleep, which is the other thing they need because they need food and sleep and 
to you know poop and stuff um, and that's basically it right and they're not capable of getting those those primary things they're so intensely vulnerable and they cry out and they're like really really um annoying in their crying out and um we still like care for them and uh, even though they're like literally torture us because we haven't slept in a month okay and even though through that torture we continue to provide for them even I've, I know so many mothers, myself certainly included, who like your baby is crying and like you're also crying and like everyone is crying together. Um, and yet somehow there's something like, I think, I think Rosh Hashanah is helping me kind of like come to terms with, thank God, those memories of, of um, the first, the first month of my son's life. Um, and um, and to say that those those cries and crying while you're you yourself are also answering the cry that there's something like very intense about that moment um that in 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 saying i am taking responsibility for this incredibly vulnerable being um that being is crying out and i am crying in response to its cries um and and together those cries will be answered and so what I wanted the, 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 to summarize what I just said, which I think was maybe a little bit winding, and then I we definitely in the last two minutes need to get to this last source because I think it's really kind of the the cherry on top. Um, is um, it's about like em intense empathy and responsibility through pushing through exasperation at all of it, um, and um, and the, the reason why that last piece is important is because similar to um, last week where we were we're asking something very specific from god i think with with show and we're asking god to kind of meld into the thing that we're trying to be right we saw moshe and god kind of melding and 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 crying out god crying out to god's self so here we're gonna we're gonna see the same thing um with god crying out on behalf of god's children uh so here we have rabbi yossi this is this is a quite um beloved passage we have rabbi yossi who said i went i was going on the way and i entered into a ruin um amongst the ruins of jerusalem to pray and elijah came and he he guarded the door okay and elijah after he finished praying elijah asks asks um asks he says my son what did you hear in this ruin i heard a heavenly voice cooing like a dove and crying out and saying Woe to the children due to whose sins I destroyed my house, burned my temple, and exiled among the nations. Omar Lee, Elijah responded, Not just, Elijah says, by your life and your head, and not just at this time does, does God cry out like this, or does the heavenly voice cry out like this, rather every day, three times a day, the heavenly voice cries out. And cries out, how? Cries out for God's children. So this, I would argue, is an act of motherhood on behalf of God. God here is in some ways like mimicking Rachel crying out for her sons, crying out for their exile. Here you have God too crying out for God for, for his for God's exiled um, children. And so I think not only does the shofar not only is the shofar carrying echoes of the cries of the mother of Sisra and the cries of Sarah, the shofar also then encourages us 
to step into motherhood and hopefully also then encourages God to also to remember that God too cries out over the precarious vulnerable situation that God God's self has put his children into um, and um, and hopefully then along with our tears and our cries and our shofar blasts God will hear God's own cries um, and answer them um, in that very same way because the doors of cries are open um and so i i guess i'll just wrap up to say um i hope you all have a beautiful happy and healthy new year and i hope that um when you hear the shofar this is something i i i actually i um often recommend to people before um shofar scream along with the shofar like inside your head not outside but like when you hear the shofar being blown, like scream inside your body, inside your head with the shofar. It's extremely powerful in my experience. And it really enables you to experience the shofar as a cry, um, almost this like wordless, intense, primordial prayer of the mother on the birthing stool crying out 99 times for death and one time for life um, as, um, as, as she sits not knowing what's about to emerge out of her very own body, um, whether for life or for death. Um, and with that same like, fear of the future, um, but responsibility for the vulnerability that the world carries, um, I hope that we can all um, take extremely seriously and, and also step into that, step into the role that the, the shofar asks, demands of us, asks of us um, in just a few days time. So Shana Tova. And um, and happy happy davening. Thank you very much. I do just want to note, as as Ramani Sarna said, folks are welcome to stick around if they have a few more questions. But I do also want to quickly note that for anyone who's interested, uh, you know, obviously we hope to to see you all next week for the last installment of this series. Uh, but we also have a number of other classes that we are offering through Drisha Online. You can get information about those at drisha.org/classes. Uh, for things that are going on the rest of this week, as well as during the Aseri Mechuva, uh, including our annual Stanley Rudolph Memorial High Holidays Lecture tomorrow at 1 p.m. Uh, does the book of Tell and Tell Story with Dr. Yael Ziegler. Information will be coming out, God willing, in the next couple of weeks about our classes post-Hagim, but we will have a full slate of things, including more classes with Rabinit Sarno, so please do keep an eye on our website for uh, all of that. Um, but yeah, questions are, are welcome if folks have a last few things, but uh, yeah, thank you all so much for being here.